Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, do you talk about Bruno? If you do, you're not alone. The soundtrack to Disney's film Encanto is taking over TikTok and music charts. We'll learn why. And on this, the one-year mark since President Joe Biden was inaugurated, we look at what he's been able to accomplish and the thorny challenges that lie ahead. I think if you take a look at what we've been able to do, uh, you'd have to acknowledge we made enormous progress. We'll get your assessment of his first year after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. President Biden called his first year in office one of enormous progress during a press conference yesterday, citing a successful vaccine rollout, record job creation, and the enactment of his infrastructure law. But ongoing supply chain issues and inflation fears threaten economic recovery and potentially Democrats' prospects in 2022. Biden's Build Back Better plan remains stalled, and last night, voting rights legislation failed. Here's Senator Cory Booker. I know this is not 1965. That's what makes me so outraged. It's 2022. And they're blatantly removing more polling places from the counties where black and Latinos are overrepresented. I'm not making that up. That is a fact. We look back at Biden's first year and hear what you think. Uh, but first, we'll hear what Domenico Montanaro thinks, senior political editor and correspondent for NPR. Domenico, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. I want to start by talking about voting rights and what happened with the legislation. And just to remind listeners, the bills would have put national standards on elections and restored the federal government's authority to review state voting laws for discrimination. So last night, Senate Republicans launched a filibuster, prevented the legislation from reaching a final vote. Shortly after that, the vote to eliminate the filibuster also went down. Where did Biden go wrong on this? He had called voting rights a cornerstone of his agenda. And I think he still believes that. Um, it, you know, you, you have a case here, I think, of the president kind of overpromising a bit, even though he continuously said yesterday at his news conference that he's not overpromising and he's going to get a lot of this stuff done. Nothing big has ever gotten done federally uh, without numbers. You know, you think about uh, mm. FDR's 
uh, New Deal, the LBJ's Great Society. You know, for all the mythology around LBJ as this great negotiator, he wouldn't have gotten done what he got done without having massive majorities among Democrats. You know, being a Southern Democrat, he was able to bring on some Southern Democrats, but he had huge numbers of people that he could lose. Barack Obama wouldn't have gotten Obamacare through without having 60 votes and then being able to have uh, a handful of senators from conservative states who he could let go and not vote for it while using reconciliation to get the second half of the Affordable Care Act through. We've got a situation here where President Biden understands how politics works. At the same time, he believes perhaps too much in his own powers of personal politics and persuasion, thinking and continuing to promise that he can get someone like Joe Manchin or Kirsten Cinema on board when, you know, there is no incentive and no leverage for them to do so. And, you know, frankly, it's a bit of overpromising from the president. Uh, and I think some of the expectations, um, you know, should have been tamped down probably because the votes weren't there to start and they're not there now. Hmm. Well, you were talking about mansion and cinema, but one of the things that I was struck by was in the press conference that preceded these failed votes on voting rights legislation. Biden said that he didn't anticipate the Republican obstructionism of his presidency. <laughs> I just want to play yeah. actually a cut of him talking about that. I did not anticipate that there'd be such a stalwart effort to make sure that the most important thing was that President Biden didn't get anything done. Think about this. What are Republicans for? I mean, what are they for? Really, Domenico? He <laughs> did not anticipate opposition. He was Obama's vice president. Yeah, I mean, from for, that was one of those moments where I just, you know, I was in live coverage yesterday and I just kind of laughed when hearing it because. I, you know, when I talked to his aides and, you know, people close to the president going into the White House, they said that they were determined to learn the lessons of the Obama presidency. And one of the lessons that they felt like uh, went wrong with Obama's domestic agenda was that he waited around too long for Republicans to get on board with the stimulus, for example. He made 40 percent of it uh, tax uh, tax cuts to for the Recovery Act, which Biden managed. <laughs> and they still didn't get Republicans on board for that. Healthcare. They had a gang of however many, <laughs> you know, come into the White House. And I read uh, portions of President Obama's book that he released recently saying he had a conversation with Chuck Grassley at one point during the Obamacare negotiations. He's in the White House. And he said to him, Chuck, if I gave you everything that you wanted that you keep talking about, would you vote for this thing? And he said he looked at me and said, Probably not. <laughs> so, yeah, this is an old story, a decades old story. Um, you know, at least the last decade, uh, we've seen, uh, you know, an increased use of the filibuster by Mitch McConnell, putting it on steroids. Um, you know, Democrats have used it too, but uh, McConnell certainly upped the ante in how many and how much he made 60 votes, the threshold for legislation, which was never the intent. So, you know, I don't know how much of this is President Biden, you know, wishing that that wasn't the case, but he certainly has gone on, you know, to talk about unity, unity, unity was his big, you know, cry during the election. And he certainly has tried to get Republicans on board. And I don't think they've waited around as long as Obama did. But to say that he was surprised that uh, by the opposition, you know, I, 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 I don't know what exactly to call that, but he's just plain wrong. 
Well, let me invite listeners to share what they think of Biden's performance in his first year. You can do so by calling 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. You can email your thoughts at forum at kqed.org. What do you think of Biden's performance? Where has his administration succeeded? Where do you think it has fallen short Interestingly, um, Domenico, when you're talking about how sort of maybe he was wishing it wasn't so, that that his powers of persuasion were strong enough to persuade Republicans <laughs> as well, it did sound like he had a little bit more of a realistic assessment of the prospects of his Build Back Better plan. Can you talk about how he shared uh, the fact that he was thinking that it may need to be broken up to get passed and how significant that was? Yeah, I actually thought that was really interesting considering on the one hand, he said, I didn't overpromise. You have to acknowledge we've made enormous progress. Um, he says, I don't think we've overpromised at all. We're going to stay on this track. And then in almost the next sentence said that, you know, part of his Build Back Better plan, he's realizing is not going to get through as a huge chunk, as a big package, and they're going to break it up into big chunks. I mean, th those two things don't really square with each other, um, you know, aside from saying he still wants to accomplish big things. And look, even getting those big chunks through, if he is able to get them through, and there is, you know, broad support, um, maybe not on you know, Capitol Hill, but certainly in the, uh, you know, when you look at public polling, when it comes to things like universal child care or um, universal uh, pre-K, uh, family medical leave, things like that, are, they are very popular. And certainly things, at least some portions of them, that these some of these holdout senators have said that they would be amenable to um, as long as they were paid for, um, but they don't want this huge price tag of this much bigger package. So I think a lot of people thought that that might be a route that they would go. So I thought it was very interesting that on the one hand, he's saying he's not over-promising, he's going to stay on this track, but on the other hand, realizing they have to change course. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Biden's response to COVID now. He said his administration has handled the pandemic remarkably well, and he talked about you know now 70-some percent of Americans are at least partially vaccinated. Do you mm -hmm. think his self-evaluation was accurate during yesterday's press conference? Well, I think that they were, you know, I think like a lot of people surprised by the Delta variant and by the Omicron variant. And, you know, if it weren't for those two things and at the pace of vaccination, certainly his declaration or close to declaration of independence last July might have come to fruition. But having these new variants, I think, was a surprise to them. And that's a reason why they didn't bulk up on testing in the way that they should have, a thing that he admitted to yesterday, because if you have a glut of tests, then there'd be criticism uh, that why are you, you know, bulking up on all this testing when the pandemic's essentially over. But I think we're at a place now where the White House has to realize, and the CDC certainly realizes that we're unlikely to be out of the pandemic and back to any kind of sense of a new normal that looks like the old normal. Mm. Um, you know, it's more likely that we're going to have more and more of these, uh, you know, varying uh, variants that pop up that, you know, the CDC certainly and public health experts hope uh, become things that spin off to be endemic and seem more like the common cold, that they're not as, uh, you know, difficult or, you know, not as not as severe as we had in the early stages of COVID. And that certainly may be the case, but we just don't know yet at this point. And, 
you know, I think that the White House, certainly when it comes to vaccine rollouts, has done a pretty good job in getting that everywhere. When it comes to testing, uh, you know, certainly later in this process, not as much, but the president admitted to that. Well, Bill writes, more people died of COVID in 2021 than in 2020, despite the vaccines. Fewer people are working than two years ago. Fewer kids in schools. A couple of trillion dollars of unnecessary debt for the next generation to pay off. Self-inflicted war, self-inflicted defeat in Afghanistan. Potential war in Ukraine. So Bill lists failures here. Um, <laughs> that, that said, I do wonder what you think about in terms of just how much Biden could control related to this pandemic and even his efforts, like, for example, the directive requiring large businesses to require that employees be vaccinated or tested. The mm. Supreme Court struck that down. Things like well, that. Yeah. I mean, listen, I, I think that people often give far too much credit and far much too much blame to the president for a host of things. I think that there are certain areas where you can directly blame a president uh, more clearly. And I honestly, that's on two areas where I continue to talk about this through the years in covering this for the last, you know, 15 years or so. It's when it comes to a president's powers, foreign policy and judges are two things that they have much more direct control over than, say, the economy or inflation um, or the direction of a pandemic, for that matter. Um, that's not to say that a president can't affect a more positive outcome on some of these things. But, you know, in talking to, yeah, you know, I talked to Brendan Nyhan, who's a professor at Dartmouth, who talks about presidential misperceptions a lot. And he said that there's this a theory called the Green Lantern theory of politics that he came up with. And the Green Lantern, the comic book hero, gets a ring. And the only thing the, the person who's wearing the ring is limited by is their power of their imagination. Well, it seems some people think that that's the case when it comes to the presidency. And it's just not. You know, the the presidency is limited purposefully by the system. And it's those institutions uh, that are the way they are. And, you know, you're not going to have big things that get done unless there are big majorities and big numbers. And that can be very frustrating for a lot of people, certainly. Well, Matty writes in response to comments about his not anticipating Republican obstructionism. I didn't hear Biden say he didn't expect opposition. I heard him say he didn't expect determined unanimous opposition. <laughs> I think he thought at least one or two Republicans would Maybe. be reasonable. <laughs> We're talking with Domenico Montanaro, senior political editor and correspondent for NPR. We're looking back and assessing how President Biden and his administration have performed uh, this past year. Stay with us for more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're assessing Biden's first year. 
this on the one-year anniversary of his inauguration and also hearing how you assess the president and his administration as well. We're talking with Domenico Montanaro, senior political editor and correspondent for NPR. And you can join our conversation by calling 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum, Instagram as well, or email us, forum at kqed.org. And Celeste writes, I think Biden is doing a great job. He's doing fine with the pandemic requirements, sending out free test kits in the mail and encouraging mask wearing. He acknowledged some states don't listen and they still don't wear masks. It's not his fault. And yes, I mean, she's absolutely right. There are a lot of uh, states led by Republicans that have basically not followed or blocked mask mandates. Um, and uh, there's just a lot. I think there was this quote in a Washington Post piece where one of the one of the uh, experts had said that they believe that as far as COVID-19 is concerned, the nation is basically ungovernable. Um, but I'm struck by your tweet, Domenico, where I think you said something along the lines of like, as go as goes mm. COVID, so goes the presidency. Do you really yep. see them as interconnected? And then what do you think that means for his Absolutely, prospects? because I think that that has to do with the mood of the country. You know, I think that when you see numbers like uh, this Reuters Ipsos poll and other polls that show some something along the lines of 60% of the country feels that the country's headed off in the wrong direction. You know, inflation has also been, you know, triggered by uh, the pandemic as well. You know, we have such a myopic right. view sometimes that we forget to look globally. And, you know, I was struck by reading uh, one of our uh, pieces from Planet Money, uh, NPR podcast and uh, section that does a lot of stuff on the economy. And they were really explaining, I thought, pretty well how inflation is tied to the pandemic and a whole lot of other things. But globally, inflation has been up um, in a lot of places, the US higher than some other places, lower than some others. But, you know, I think once the if the pandemic were to recede, uh, and people felt safe going out, and feeling like they were getting back to a sense of normal, and people were, you know, there wasn't there weren't these labor shortages where people were going back to work, um, you know, uh, and people are going out to restaurants, going out to bars and feeling like they're getting their lives back, people's moods would certainly be better and be different and more positive and more optimistic. And I think that they were there in July. All you have to do is look at the numbers. Think about this. President Biden's approval rating was in the 50s back in July of last year, right when he was declaring independence from the, the uh, pandemic. And then with uh, the, the Delta variant and, you know, notably, uh, the chaotic exit uh, from Afghanistan, which, you know, people can disagree whether the U.S. should be there or not still. Uh, but the way it was handled, I think even people in the White House, again, speaking of surprised, were surprised by the, the strength of which and the quickness with which the Taliban were able to take over. That really hit at a core uh, piece of President Biden's uh, you know, working philosophy, that he's competent, that he can uh, do government, he can make government function better than the last guy. Uh, and that took a bit of a hit with independence in particular. You saw his number switch there with that and with the Delta variant rise and now the Omicron rise. A lot of people just really frustrated and exhausted. And I think as goes COVID, so goes the Biden presidency. Absolutely. Well, let me go to caller Frank in Mill Valley. Hi, Frank. Hey, Mina. <clears throat> I'd like to switch back to the voting rights uh, imbroglio and ask Dominic. Uh, so I agree that uh, wasting time with cinema and mansion was a fool's errand. But what would you have had him do? Uh, the, the issue that I see is 
not only are you have, are you playing a catch up with the Republican state level ground game, which has been beating the Democrats hollow for the last 15 years, but also you run the risk of losing the active uh, black and brown community mm-hmm. who see the failure to do this as causing them to say, well, why should I bother voting? So so given the razor thin majority, what should he have done? I think it's a very difficult question. I think that it's a question I get quite a bit and it's a completely fair question. And I, I, I think part of this, again, is expectations, you know, being able to set expectations that are reasonable for people to realize that this isn't likely to get done um, unless Republicans are able to come on board and you can cross that 60 vote threshold. Uh, I think that President Biden, certainly for Build Back Better, thought that he could get Joe Manchin because he has such good relationship with him on board. Uh, and I think was probably surprised by Kirsten Sinema's more staunch opposition, even though she's in favor of some things like family leave, for example. Uh, there are things that you can sort of negotiate with her on. Um, but, I, you know, again, people I talked to said that it, it doesn't mean that it isn't worth trying to make a public push for legislation. It isn't, it's not that it isn't worth you know, making using the bully pulpit, you can maybe inspire people, uh, a holdout senator or two, to come around. Maybe you know, protesting at the right people's offices, um, you know, showing a degree of activism, showing that polling is on your side, can get to you know pressure people to feel like they want this off their back politically. Uh, but it rarely works. Uh, what usually what works is numbers, you know, and not having those sixty senators. Uh, when you have a Republican opposition that, you know, President Biden says he's surprised as, as obstinate as it is, um, you know, I think makes it difficult. I, I I would say being surprised at McConnell's opposition shouldn't be surprising, which sounded like he was surprised by. Uh, but be, I'm a bit surprised, frankly, that there hasn't been more public pressure and negotiation um, and talk with people like Mitt Romney, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, the usual three or four or five Republicans, up to the seven who voted for Trump's impeachment, um, to be able to, you know, feel like they needed to come around on something like voting rights, which they might vote for if it weren't for the 60 vote threshold. But even if you got those seven, you're not at 60. So I think the hill was always very, very high to climb. And I think that it's a very dissatisfying answer to say that you just need more numbers and that it doesn't matter kind of how much Biden pushed for it. But I think that he does, you know, need to make people feel like he's doing everything he possibly can. And I think that activist community that we talked to say that they feel like that he wasn't talking about this as strongly as he possibly could from the beginning to even if it failed to put people on notice, put people on record and to call them out. Well, Joe writes over promise. Look at all he has done so far. Do you think the pandemic would be better (laughs) had he not pushed hard? There are tons of things he has pushed only to be blocked by those two dinos. Why are you guys harping on Biden for attempting (laughs) to do the right things? And Robert writes, why won't NPR every day in all discussions and reports on voting and elections plainly describe that one party, Republicans, are opposed to democracy as a form of government? I think (laughs) one of the things that these two comments are getting at more broadly, or at least (laughs) I think, are how do you assess a president in these times, a democratic president, when the other major party is willing to be anti-democratic, feel misinformation, beholden to a narcissist for short-term political gain? Well, I mean, this is very complicated, Um, but, you know, 
I, I do think that President Biden, when it comes to his agenda, has certainly accomplished quite a bit when you think about getting the, you know, uh, tax credits through at the beginning, uh, the American Rescue Plan, I mean, the infrastructure bill in addition to that. I mean, if we were just thinking about saying that, you know, the um, the moderate position for an infrastructure bill was, oh, $1.1 trillion or so, you know, we would be thinking that's crazy. I mean, if you think about how big the bills were that he was able to get through, they were larger than the Recovery Act in, uh, you know, 2009, uh, bigger than almost anything. I, I, you know, don't quote me on that exactly, but they're humongous bills and they are big accomplishments to be able to get that through. And the infrastructure law has really, it's a major thing that's been, uh, that's really eluded so many presidents. It'd become a joke that we're talking about infrastructure week over and over again, basically since Barack Obama and uh, John Boehner, the former speaker, were talking about it and couldn't agree on pay-fors. And I just remember over and over again talking to Boehner's office saying, well, where are you going to meet on, you know, the in-between with uh, how to pay for this? And it was like just over and over again, it's dead on arrival. It's not going to happen. And Biden was able to, you know, break through some of that and get a significant number of Republicans on board with it. I think part of the problem here is how long they let negotiations be public uh, you know, airing all this dirty laundry from Democrats, you know, for months and months and months uh, in public. And that really overshadowed, I think, what were significant achievements. Well, uh, let me see if I can get this call from Raza in San Carlos. Raza, are you there? Let's see if we can grab that call in a second. Me oh, there yeah, he is. Hello? Raza, go right ahead. You're on. Yeah. So I am just, uh, I think, you guys were just talking about this uh, right now that the, the Democrats have been blaming the two Democrats for all the <clears throat> hindrance and all the problems. But they, we need to uh, really grab the bull by the horn and blame the, um, the Republicans, 50 Republicans, for blocking the child care and the prescription drug and the voting right. I think that's one point. And the other that I wanted to make quickly is Afghanistan departure. We are blaming uh, Biden for that. But 60 percent of Afghanistan was under Taliban control when Biden came in because of the Trump uh, deal that he privately mm -hmm. and secretly made with the Taliban. So I think that needs to be brought out very um, uh, blatantly out. Thank you. Uh, Raza, appreciate hearing your points. Let me just read a couple more. Jace or JC writes, while I am similarly dismayed by the president's apparent surprise on Republican obstructionism, I am enraged that his administration has yet to take action on possible executive order issues like canceling student debt or banning conversion therapy. The Biden-Harris administration has committed to some great values, but throwing arms in the air and blaming Republicans for lack of action is unacceptable. Increasing the military's budget was salt in the wound. So there's another side. Steve, on the other side, writes, many Republicans would rather have white autocracy rather than multicultural democracy. They will deny this. They tell themselves that their intent is to prevent widespread voter fraud, which does not exist. Those members of the Republican Party who do support democracy need to choose and vote for candidates who support liberty, patriotism, and democracy. This may require voting for 
for outside of their usual party affiliation. So lots of different mm -hmm. assessments of how Biden is doing. What I want to hear from you, Domenico, is, I mean, what does this mean potentially in your view for 2022? And yeah. also how he's got to navigate this year since it is midterm elections. Well, first of all, I think Raza makes some really uh, reasonable points uh, when it comes to, you know, pushing back against Republicans as a strategy, which, you know, President Biden was really reluctant to do for a while because he was holding out hope. He didn't want to alienate them. He wanted to see if he could get some on board. But realizing that you've heard this shift in message, not just in yesterday's press conference, but in, uh, you know, when we talk about the economic numbers that came out uh, toward the beginning of the year, uh, President Biden really started this shift in taking aim at Republicans to put the focus more on them because the focus had been so much on Democrats when there is half of another, you know, part, you know, and there's a whole other party that's half of the Senate uh, that certainly could deal on some of these things and don't appear to be willing or ready to do so. Uh, executive orders are fairly limited. Uh, certainly, you know, I think that there are a num any number that uh, that they could or would take or might take still uh, that I'm not privy to. But um, those are obviously things that, you know, the administration could look at doing. But again, they're very limited in scope, generally speaking. Um, the 2022 midterms, every Democratic strategist and every Republican strategist I talk to over and over again is expecting a Republican wave in the House uh, this fall uh, that Republicans are likely to take back the House. Part of that is historic. Um, and just the ebbs and flows of presidential versus midterm elections and base voter politics, because uh, you know, in midterm years, they're base elections. And, you know, right now the Republican base is angry and fired up and anger certainly the biggest, one of the biggest motivators to getting people mobilized to go and vote. Uh, and, you know, I think Democrats on Capitol Hill leadership understand that they have uh, a clock that's ticking down right now. And, you know, Mitch McConnell has said essentially that they're not going to outline what their legislative priorities are if they take back Congress. Uh, and you have President Biden starting to sort of shape a message of what he's going to say and do on the campaign trail uh, to push back against that. And I think what's really important here is even though the House is likely to go Republican, just historically, uh, first term of a president's midterm election is terrible. You know, they lose on average about 29 seats in recent history. Uh, you know, it was the same. President Obama lost 63 seats, won re-election himself. Uh, you know, former President Trump lost a dozen, a couple dozen seats as well. So that's what's likely to happen. But the Senate is actually a different landscape. And there's a lot worth fighting for on that front uh, that Democrats actually, you know, depending on how President Biden's approval rating goes, they have a couple of targets that uh, Republicans don't. Uh, you know, Republicans top target might be Mark Kelly in Arizona, and he seems in pretty good shape right now. Democrats, on the other hand, looking to hold most of their seats and, you know, maybe target uh, Ron Johnson in Wisconsin, potentially uh, the open seat in Pennsylvania, maybe even the seat in North Carolina. So you're looking at potentially a seat or two that Democrats, if things hold, could expand their majority in the Senate. Uh, you know, that could change, obviously, if Biden's prospects get even worse. But there's a lot that President Biden clearly is starting to work on as far as the messaging goes. Democrats are craving a message right now to be able to sell that subject, verb, object to be able to combat the way Republicans are able to make that message as well. We're talking with Domenico Montanaro, senior political editor and correspondent for NPR. 
You, our listeners are sharing your thoughts on Biden in his first year and asking questions. Kyla writes, I have been moderately disappointed in Biden due to the lack of bills passed. However, lately, it is impressive how he has handled a much more difficult world between Russia and COVID. The cards are being dealt against him, but he clearly has strength when that occurs, which is something I really care about in a president. A couple of thoughts or questions on COVID, Domenico. Uh, Hilda asks, will their opposition to COVID control measures help Republicans in the next election? Mm -hmm. Um, And then Jave has a question related to COVID handling by the CDC. Jave writes, I will stand by leaders in this country who have the country's best at heart that I believe Biden does. One of the most frustrating aspects of this year, however, has been the continued poor messaging coming out of the CDC. I expected that to improve dramatically with the changes of the administration and have been surprised at a lot of their decision making. How much control does the president have over the CDC? Well, that's really interesting. I mean, I think that he hits on a that they hit on a, a few things there that are really um, notable. I mean, as far as first the COVID opposition and whether it'll help Republicans, I think it probably will in some respects because their core base is so fired up against uh, you know measures that look like they're in their freedom, uh, even though the scientists say that the best thing to do is to get vaccinated and to wear masks. You know, I mean, this is not complicated. Uh, there isn't a giant conspiracy. The public health experts are trying their best to keep people safe and to stem a pandemic. And when you look at the hospitalization numbers, that should be enough evidence for anyone for why they should get vaccinated, because the people who are unvaccinated are the ones who are most winding up in hospitalizations overwhelmingly 90 plus percent um, of hospital rooms uh, with people with COVID are because they're unvaccinated. So, you know, that's, I think, a really important thing. It's not some big, broad, you know, deep state conspiracy. Unfortunately, there are too many people who are listening to people who don't frankly know what they're talking about. uh, And they're not listening to the experts on these things because they quote, want to do their own research, which is never the right thing because you have people who've already done the research. (laughs) As far as the CDC poor messaging goes, this is very complicated. It's very difficult. And we're actually watching to see if there are changes at the CDC because because there very well could be, uh, because the, the messaging has not been, you know, as clear as it could be. Well, Norman writes, the, Demo- the Democrats have accomplished a tremendous amount and will accomplish a lot more if they can increase majorities in the Senate and the House. As you said, Domenico, big things happen with big majorities. We'll see what happens. Domenico, thanks so much for talking with us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. Domenico Montanaro, senior political editor and correspondent for NPR. Really appreciate listeners sharing their assessments with us as well. And my thanks to Susie Britton for producing this segment. We've got another one after the break. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.